Welcome to the BNP Room Podcast. Once again, this is your host, Brian, and as always, thank you for joining me. Today, BNP are for Beyond the Pale and Into the Great Unknown, aka the Near Death Experience episode. This has been one of my favorite topics to look into for over 20 years now, ever since I had what I refer to as a waking death experience in fall 1998. In my opinion, the near-death experience, or NDE as it is usually called, is one of the more important discoveries of the past 50 years. Learning about them from the people who have experienced one can give us guidance in how to live our lives. After reading hundreds, maybe thousands, of near-death experiences, I've come to sum up the meaning of life with this phrase, Life is for loving, learning, and living. A friend who had an NDE described loving like this. In her NDE, she said, Love was a reoccurring theme. I had several presentations with visuals on love. I had been desperately seeking to be loved and to feel love prior to my NDE. It was explained to me that loving is in fact as great as being loved, that loving is its own reward. As I loved, others would respond back to that again with love. Thus, love birthed more love and on. The light explained that when we accept and love ourselves as we are, we give others permission to accept and love their true selves also. About learning, she commented, Every experience is valuable. Our mistakes are not seen negatively, but as important and necessary for our learning experience and personal growth. It was explained to me that every level of our experience can be appreciated, that there was no rush and no need to compare with anyone else. I've added the living in recent years because it dawned on me that we learn and we love through living, through truly embracing life. An NDE story suggests we didn't come here to play it safe. Now, on to a summation of the episode. First, I'm going to read a story a friend shared with me about his NDE. Then, you'll hear a clip from hypnotherapist Dolores Cannon about what she learned about the life review process. These are meant to set up what the experience may be like. After that, a few things that may be helpful for using the NDE to guide your life. First, a chapter from the book, The Purpose of Life, as revealed by near-death experiencers around the world, which talks about how we can live in the face of concerns about a future that appears bleak. Then, I set up a poem written by a dear friend, titled Heaven, before a musical break, where we hear Fishes Beneath a Sea of Stars, Part 1, which beautifully captures the vibe I felt from reading NDEs for 20 years. After the song, we return to the book for an NDE about the future, which I think may surprise you and give you hope. And as always, we end with two very hefty chapters of The Teacher and the Tree Man, chapters 15 and 16 from book 4. Okay, this is an extra long episode, but I felt it was worth it to go a little deeper into this fascinating, important topic. Enjoy. The following is from James Getch, and he refers to this as his ABE, afterbody experience from 1980. Here goes. 
I was raised an atheist, so that was my belief at the time of my NDE, agnostic at best. I didn't have anything against religion, or the concept, I just figured it was reassuring for people who needed it. It just made sense to me to do the right thing and be moral. I was 12 years old at the time. My cousin and I were going to explore some caves out in the desert with our dads. We were in a separate car and had stopped to get batteries for the flashlights, and were headed out to meet up with our dads who were ahead of us. The road was loose gravel and had been so traveled as to have made furrows of the gravel, leaving three tracks or ruts. There were two children along the road at the top of a slight rise in the road, who were probably three or four years old. They weren't getting off of the road, so my cousin gave them a wide berth and let off the gas as he passed them going over the rise. The car began to fishtail, and we launched off one of the sides of the road and landed on two wheels. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. The last thing I experienced was myself floating out of my seat towards the dashboard. The car flipped over one and a half times off the driver's corner. My side of the car was crushed flat. I thought I had just been stunned and was awake and was looking at my hands when my vision had gotten blurry, but then I could see the back of my head, then my whole body, then the whole car. I could see myself through the bottom of the car as well. I noticed the children who had sort of triggered the accident were jumping up and down and clapping. I could actually see the compression waves coming from their hands, but they were frozen in place. Time had essentially stopped. This happened out in the desert, so I immediately wondered where their parents were. They were about a quarter of a mile away, and I suddenly found myself hovering above them. I could feel everything about the parents. The wife was going over the things she had brought for their outing, and the husband had already unloaded his motorcycle and was walking back to his truck to get his gas can. I could hear everything they were thinking. I knew what their deepest fears were, aspirations, etc. It was as if I could experience them completely, more than they knew themselves, it seemed. Then my attention was drawn to the horizon, and I traveled out into space. I encountered what I characterized as between a group and a village of points of perception. They were all focused on something to the left. It looked like a ball of dust, a planet maybe. Most of them were unaware of me, but a few were aware of me, but were ignoring me. They seemed to fear I would upset what they were trying to do, so I thought, if they don't want me to come any closer, then I won't. I didn't even know why I was out there in the first place. So then my thoughts went back to the accident. When I turned around, all I could see was space and stars, but I seemed to know where I had come from, and I shot back down to Earth. As I approached the Earth, it was at first a tiny dot, then it got larger and larger until I came back, through the atmosphere, to the accident scene. I found myself higher above the accident, and then my attention was drawn to a nearby butte. I went to it, and I could see the grains of soil and the blades of grass. It was interesting, as the grass seemed to have a spiritual energy to it, as did the soil. I'm thinking bacteria now, but at the time I was not aware of bacteria. I thought it ironic that the grass seemed completely unaware of me, yet it seemed to think of the soil as nothing. I say think, but we really wouldn't call it thinking, kind of an instinctual awareness or an intent. Then my thoughts went back to the accident, and I was above the wreck. I was a bit higher above the accident when it occurred to me that it was as if love was what I was made out of, like there wasn't a thing wrong anywhere in the universe, and I suddenly understood any and everything. I understood things I had never even imagined to know. I'm just enjoying these impressions and looking down at my body, and I think, if I exist like this, why be like that? And an answer comes to me, we're here to learn. And I think, what? The answer continues, we're here to learn, 
to learn how to love, to learn how to give and receive love, which kind of shocked me as I had not noticed that about people. Then I thought about our world here on earth and what that means. Then there was a tapestry before me that was the sum total of human interactions on earth, all woven together from the left to the right. The left was the past and the right was the future. The future was sort of grayed out or kind of misty and immaterial. The closer I looked, the more detail I could see, down to individual lifetimes. I saw several individuals over time and actually watched a whole lifespan of one of them in detail. It appears we're approaching our maxima again. This is the fourth flush of humanity from what I saw. There were three other times where the earth has been this populated. Each time, the numbers would drop precipitously to the point where knowledge of civilization would be lost and we would start over. We are approaching such a time, only the next version doesn't grow back like the other times. It stays at a low number, at least that was what was projected. In the future, people are no longer confused about who and what they are. People communicate telepathically. There was no veil between the worlds. People are completely conscious. People live for a long time, basically as long as they wanted. People prayed or meditated their food into existence. Unlike Howard Storm, I didn't see them doing this because they wanted to, but rather because they had to. After perusing what some would call the Akashic Record, it occurred to me that this information was coming from somewhere, and who is we? I realized that it was coming from behind me, and as I turned to see, I began shooting out into space again. At that point, I realized that I was dying. That's what was happening. Up to that point, I was going along with what was happening for the fact that it was happening. I believed to that point that when you're dead, you cease to exist. Then this fear came into me that I was going to possibly dissipate like a cloud. Simultaneously, what the Native Americans call our original instructions flooded into me, and I thought, no, there's too much I have to do. And with that thought, I woke up in the car, just like I had seen myself, and reached back and turned off the ignition. I was afraid the car would burst into flames. It had rested on its top, but the motor was still sputtering, and what turned out to be brake fluid was dripping on us through the floor. My cousin and I crawled out of his side of the car, and were collecting ourselves when a white Cadillac happened along and took us to our dad's further out into the desert. The people driving were elderly and were wearing white clothes and had white hair. The car had white leather seats, which I was bled all over when we took the ride. They seemed kind of odd, but we took a ride with them anyway, not seeing any of their options. The husband spent the whole time admonishing us of how we were driving and dropped us off at our parents, which incidentally had nothing to do with the accident. Someone had been fishtailing back and forth along the road right up to where we wrecked, but my cousin was doing nothing of the sort. He was just inexperienced, obviously driving too fast for the conditions, and a multitude of factors converged to precipitate the accident. My whole experience transpired in the time it took my cousin to shout my name once. At the hospital, I told the doctor some of what I experienced, and he assured me it was a dream, that my mind had made it up. From the veridical observation of how I ended up in the car, and the car's relation to the road, I knew I couldn't have known that beforehand, which pretty much put me in a condition of PTSD I was later to figure out, which is a whole nother story. Okay, one quick note at the end there when he talked about the future, he re referenced Howard Storm, and at the end of this podcast, you are going to hear Howard Storm's recollection of what he saw in the future. So that will make more sense. 
The following is a clip from Dolores Cannon, who was a hypnotherapist that specialized in past life regression for over 50 years. And in this clip, she is going to talk about what she discovered through her work about the life review process. So they take them up to the review board. And there are boards, there are elders, there's masters. They can't tell you what to do, but they're there to advise you. So you go up and look, and they're going to show you your life. They show you everything you have ever done, every word you've ever said, everybody you have ever touched or hurt or anything. And believe me, this is not easy to look at. They're showing it very objectively, but they don't show it just from the viewpoint of you looking at it. They show it from the perspective of everybody you were involved with. You begin to see it from their eyes, from their viewpoint. Believe me, that hurts. Because all of a sudden they'll say, I didn't know I hurt them like that. I didn't know what I said affected them that way. Because, you know, we do that. We go through life. We don't pay attention to what we're doing to people. But over there, you see it and you see exactly what you've done and exactly the way that affected the other people. I think if more people understood this, we'd be kinder to people, knowing it's gonna come back on us because you don't put yourself in their position. But if you see what you have actually done to that person, then suddenly you say, I've got to repay this. This is what's karma. I can't let this go by. I have to do something to repay what I have done to that person. So then you talk to the other soul. You say, well, we didn't do such a good job, did we? Oh, <laughs> uh, and we ought to go back and do it again. This time, you be the husband, I'll be the wife. You be the mother, I'll be the child. Because you can switch roles around any way you want. It doesn't make any difference. It's all a play anyway. It's just a game. It's all a play. I've had people go through the death experience, and when they're up on the other side looking down at it, they'll say, it was just a play. I see all the actors in the wings getting ready to come on and play their parts and put on their costumes. It didn't mean anything. But they said, when I was there, it was so intense. It was so much emotion. And I was in the middle of all of this. But they said, from over here, it's like a blink of an eye. You can look at it from two different things. We get caught up in the illusion. These are the things that are important for people to know about. And it is just a game, just a play, but we're playing different parts. Uh, this, you have a body, you are not a body. This is just a suit of clothes, I call a costume, you put on to play this part at this time. The next time around, you know, suits of clothes, no matter how much you attach to them, how much you like them, they are going to wear out. You have to eventually throw them away. And when that happens, you just get another suit of clothes, another costume to play the next part that you're going to have to come back and do again. So you have to make these plans and you have to make your contract with these people. Okay, let's go back and let's do it again. Let's try this time. Sometimes they've gone through a series of lives with the same people making the same mistakes again and again and again. And it's finally time to tear up the contract and say, it's not working. Let's just forget about it. 
We tried, but it's not working. This essay is from The Purpose of Life, as revealed by near-death experiences from around the world, by David Sunfellow. The title of this essay is How to Steal Storms and Walk on Water. While few in number, some near-death experiencers are shown apocalyptic visions of the future. Earthquakes and tsunamis rage across the earth. Governments and civilizations collapse. Vast numbers of plants, animals, and people die. Other near-death experiencers are shown that the worst is behind us. We are now on a path where everything is going to get better and better. While the specifics and severity of end-of-the-world predictions differ in NDEs, there is one thing they all agree on. A new world is coming. Heavenly states of consciousness will eventually manifest in this world. What can we do to help? The deepest, most profound near-death experiences tend to be light-hearted and full of hope. There is a playfulness and sense of humor to these NDEs. Instead of raining down fire and brimstone, these NDEs are full of laughter, merriment, and gentle admonitions to lighten up and not take life so seriously. How can these NDEs be so cheerful when so many apocalyptic possibilities are knocking on our collective door? One answer is that the higher realms know the world is a dream. No one is really hurt or lost, and everything is unfolding as it should. Higher states of consciousness also know that everything works out in the end, one way or the other. In other words, the challenges we face in this world are similar to the challenges we face in dreams. After a dream has run its course, we wake up, unscathed, and so do all of our dreaming friends. Even nightmares that are hyper-real and super scary come and go. Here's the point. Whether the world follows a rough path to higher states of consciousness or a gentle one, we can help by staying connected to the parts of ourselves that know everything is okay. Instead of getting caught up in the drama of life and injecting more fear, instability, and despair into the collective consciousness of the planet, we can train ourselves to stay calm and collected. And one more thing. It's the deep places that produce miracles, and healings, and solutions to complicated and bewitching problems. So staying calm and collected is not simply a way to maintain inner peace. It's also a way to find practical solutions to life's many challenges. So whatever is happening in your personal life, or in the world at large, I encourage you to go deeper and higher. Engage life full on, but don't take things too seriously. Be cheerful and lighthearted. Joke and laugh. Be a force of nature that not only stops fear in its tracks, but turns the tide and lifts others to higher ground. Now here I'm going to add my own ending, because he writes, This book can help. And this is true. But what I want to change it to is, learning about near-death experiences can help. When negative influences take you hostage and you feel yourself slipping into despair, reach for this book or other books or resources online about the near-death experience. These things will help you reconnect with the high, calm, healing places within.
The following is a poem written by a dear departed friend. I met this person on the internet in fall of 2014, and we developed a real strong bond in the next several months. Like me, she is a ENFP in MBTI terms, and she is a poet and a person who thinks and feels deeply. In addition to that, <clears throat> her name is very similar to the name of a poet who I dearly loved, who I also lost, my first love. Her name, my, my first love, her name was Tonya Cameron. And the poem, the poet of this poem I will read to you, her name is Tina Countryman. And both left us when they left us. It can feel like too soon, but who are we to say? When Tina left, it came as a shock to the group of friends that we had because she was in a good space and maybe too good of a space. She was getting her life back on track. She'd had a rough life. I don't know all the details. I know there was abuse. I know she had children that were also troubled and she'd had a rough life. But she was getting her life back on track. I believe she was going to go back to school for something. And if I remember the story right, she was feeling really good about things and one night went to a festival and drank some or too much. Drank and took some sort of pharmaceuticals, benzos I think, and died in her sleep that night. And it was a big shock. That was a summer I lost a lot of people. Um, now I'm recording this actually on the afternoon after I recorded episode 30 which was about loss. So maybe it makes sense that here I am recording a bit for episode 38 and it's connecting to loss. Um, but I went into my room right now looking for a book. The book that I was looking for, I didn't find, but instead I saw this book that I bought by Tina and it's called Starlight Dancing and she wrote under the name Starlight. It says born in May of 1957. Starlight has been writing since she was able to. She is a seeker of truth who apparently had to experience her dark nights of the soul so she could remember how to dance along her light of day. And yeah, she was a really, man, she was a powerful person, just like my, my first love. Um, there was a lot there. And this poem I'm going to read to you, well, it connects to what you're going to hear in today's episode or today's book reading. Uh, which is on, again, the topic of death and heaven and what comes next. And I just went into the room here and I found this book. And as I do sometimes, uh, one thing I like about paper or books that are printed as opposed to ebooks is I like just opening them up to random pages and seeing what happens. It's kind of my way of playing with the synchronicities and the connections of the universe. And I opened it up and I found this poem which 
is titled Heaven. So, please enjoy. Heaven by Tina Countryman Last night I died and went to heaven. There were no gates of grace, no streets of gold, no great white throne, no judgment there to face, no angels singing hallelujah, no peace to rest upon, no mansions that were promised. I was all alone. There was no feast, no wedding, no groom, no bridal chamber waiting, no marriage, nor honeymoon. There were no lights shining bright, no glory, no joy, no love, no spirit whisking me away to eternal bliss, not even an entity called God. As I waited in the darkness, wondered if hell was now my home, but the only demon present was the one that was my own. Mind insane, still in chains, what needed to break through? Still alone and suffering, what was I to do? If mine is a barrier of itself, what breaks through to the other side? Where is heaven? Where is hell? Why and where does God hide? No gold at the end of the rainbow, no slippers to click me home. No heaven, no hell, just nothingness. No more me to roam. Wrapping my mind round Maya, the sounds of a sweet lullaby. Go back to sleep, it's just a dream, a dream that can never die. What must die? What can live? Free of heaven and hell? The answer is nothing, nothing at all, has locked you in its cell. <laughs>
Future of the World by near-death experiencer Howard Storm. The world that they showed me in the near future, in a couple hundred years from now, is a world that is difficult for me to understand or accept. What I saw was no visible signs of technology. If there was technology, they hid it from me, or it was so subtle that I couldn't even see it. I assumed the future would be a world of high technology, and they showed me a world of not low technology, but no technology, where people's relationship with God, with the creation, and with one another was so intense that human beings controlled the weather of the planet, not just for the welfare of human beings, but for the welfare of the entire planet. Everybody in the world was telepathically connected to everybody else in the whole world. People raised food by simply meditating or thinking about the food, and the food would just grow. They would then pick it and eat it. It was not instantaneous, but it happened before your eyes. Cabbage would grow from a seed to a full-grown cabbage in a matter of few minutes. People lived in small communities. People could move from community to community, freely, if they wanted to. Most people didn't move around very much. Some communities put an emphasis on music. Some communities put an emphasis on science. Some communities put an emphasis on celebration, liturgy, worship. Some communities spent their time on physical relaxation and enjoyment, sports, and that sort of thing. Some communities were very contemplative and did seemingly very little. Some communities were very active and were very much engaged with their environment, sort of what we would call gardeners, but they were literally environmental sculptures making these very beautiful places with the vegetation and the geology around them. Different communities had different emphasis, but they lived in total harmony with the flora and fauna around them, and in complete harmony with one another. The main emphasis of every community was the individuals in the community, and most especially, the children. When people had experienced what they felt was their full life experience, there would be a great celebration and they would lay down and die, and their souls, their spirits, would be raised up to heaven. Dying was not seen as a sad thing or grievous thing. It was a joyous time. It was celebrated as a birth. People ate simply, dressed simply. From what I was shown, there were no possessions other than the clothes on their back and a few simple instruments like musical instruments or tools or things like that which were pretty much shared communally. It was a world that's very difficult for me to make any sense of, because there was great happiness. There was very little suffering. There was no disease because people, with laying on of hands, could heal diseases immediately. The only real suffering that they showed me was sometimes people felt a sense of separateness. And the community would allow these people to feel that, but they would pray for that person. They would surround that person with love and bring that person back into the community. So it was possible for people to move a little bit away from the spirit of the community, but they were brought back into the community. No one was left. No one was ever lost for very long. 
It was important sometimes for people to feel, to appreciate what they had. They needed to lose a little bit of it once in a while. The Spirit of Christ lived in every heart, fully and completely. It's a world that is so unlike the world that we live in. How can we ever get there? But they show me that this is the world that God envisions for us, and it's not that far away. Chapter 15, A Killer Speech Deep breaths, Sylvanus told himself as he looked out at the applauding crowd from behind the podium. They filled about half the auditorium, some in the floor seats, some in both balconies. It was the biggest turnout yet, for sure. Instead of delving right in, he waited for about 30 seconds after the applause had ended and considered his words. He'd talked with Lucas and Larry about what he would say, but didn't script any of it. If there was ever a time to speak from the heart, this was it. Finally, he said, Before I begin, I need to apologize for my behavior last night. I know my friend Paul Lucas said that my behavior was the result of fatigue. I wish to offer no such excuse. That audience deserved better. So again, my deepest apologies. I promised the fine folks in San Francisco to return as soon as possible and I'll give you all as much time as you want from me. Now, tonight I want to talk about personal weaknesses. We all have flaws. It's an unavoidable part of being human. So what are mine? Anger and impatience are at the top of the list. Before I discuss both of these, I want to acknowledge that by admitting my weaknesses, I risk giving ammunition to my political opponents. So why do it? Have I lost my marbles? Well... Maybe. He heard a few chuckles from the crowd, which made him smile before he continued. I don't want to be a candidate who is brought down by my weaknesses because I am unaware of them. We can only hope to better ourselves if we can clearly admit our flaws and work on overcoming them. So, he said, pausing, let's look at two of my flaws. First, anger. I can't help but feel angry at how the world functions. The way we seem to think our make-believe economic system is more important than our ecology, which is, unlike our economy, real and not invented. The air, the land, the forests, and the oceans are real. The stock market, the GDP, and the way we've structured our economy are not. I feel like I shouldn't have to say this because it seems so obvious and sounds so silly when it is said. Yep. Our civilization carries on as though what I say is untrue. So yes, this makes me angry. Why? We exploit our real material resources with little concern for the consequences. Yet those consequences are becoming increasingly clear. Our scientists report the results of their research. Habitat destruction, species extinction, air pollution, the list goes on and on. Yet we need not listen to our scientists to beware of the damage we are doing to the environment in the name of economic progress. We just need to enter the natural world and perceive it with our senses. For example, on my trip here down the Pacific coast, I lost count of the number of clear-cut forests we drove through. Each of those scars on the land tears at our hearts, compelling us to ask, why do we do this? And they implore us to not turn away 
not to hide behind the veil of denial. So yes, the consequences of devaluing our natural world and our lust for money are clear. However, he continued, our economy is not only harming nature, it is harming our fellow humans. It creates hungry people without adequate food and shelter, while implicitly suggesting this is unavoidable. And we rationalize it by saying it's the fault of the poor because they just don't work hard like the rest of us do. Do we really believe this? He asked and paused to let the audience consider their answer. Because I'm reasonably certain that if you went to a sweatshop in the third world where people are working 15-hour days making products for the first world, you wouldn't think they are lazy. Nor if you watch the poor in our own country toil at two or three jobs just to keep the lights on and food on the table for their kids. No, the poor are not poor because of a lack of effort. It is the result of the structure of our economy. He paused. The crowd had been silent at the start of the speech, but he could now hear several whispered conversations. He took another deep breath and continued. It's hard for me to consider these things and not become angry not want to lash out at those who promote and benefit from such a world. But I know that striking out in uncontrolled rage cannot solve these problems. It cannot hope to raise consciousness to a level where things might change. In fact, anger will only perpetuate the problem. Why? Because anger is a disconnected emotion. When we are angry, we are angry at something or someone. And it absolves us of any responsibility for the problem. It says that the problem is someone else's fault, thus separating the world into good guys and bad guys. Lucas was standing just off the side of the stage, watching Sylvanus and marveling at the tree man. Was it really possible this was a man who less than two years ago didn't remember anything of living in the human world? Was it really possible this was the same man who'd lost it just 24 hours ago? Tonight, his words, while strong and direct, were not tinged with anger, and they were straight from the heart, not something some speechwriter had crafted. Lucas looked out over the crowd. Most seemed to be just as entranced by the speech as he was, though some were talking quietly. One group in the front row of the lower balcony seemed to be talking rather animatedly with each other. They were a motley crew, most dressed in what Lucas could only call survivalist gear. He'd never seen any people like this at the other presentations, and wondered what brought them to this one and what they were discussing. Still, overall, it was an attentive crowd, and it gave Lucas hope that no matter how different Sylvanus's words were from normal political discourse, they were resonating in some way. Now, let me address my impatience, Sylvanus continued. Scientists are telling us, we must act now. There is no time to lose. If we don't, we may pass a tipping point where it will be too late. These sorts of warnings naturally create anxiety if we pay attention to them. More than that, many of us experience events which bring this message home. I lived in a beautiful, unique forest canyon with sky-reaching trees, thousands of minute creatures and everything in between. And yet, it was all but raised to the ground so people in a nearby town could have one more place to shop at. The collateral damage of consumer convenience, if you will. Had it not been for the fortuitous timing of meeting Paul Lucas and his courage in helping me out of the tree I lived in, I also would have been killed. So, I was given a second lease on life. Why? Again, he paused. Every time I ask myself that question, 
The answer that has come back to me has been that I need to speak up for those aspects of the natural world that don't have the gift of a human voice. And I have done so using my blog, giving speeches, and going on TV and radio shows that reach millions around the world. But the destruction of nature continues, as though I was silent, as though I did die in that forest. This fuels my impatience. My heart tells me we need to change our ways ASAP. To be honest, I am not sure I can be patient. Yet I must. Because impatience can paralyze us and cloud our thinking. We feel such panic that we can't find solutions to our problems. And thus, we sometimes get angry at our impotence. Conversations rippled through the crowd, and Sylvanus felt he needed to wrap up and open the discussion for the audience to participate in. If he kept carrying on, he risked losing the impact of what he was saying. So, to get back to my weaknesses, if I looked at the enemies I have created, the destroyers of forests like Last Rush Canyon, the people who exploit our natural world and harm it because all they focus on is short-term financial gain, if I look at them and become angry and impatient with them, this will only strengthen their wills and sink them further into the very thinking that I seek to change. No, this is not the way. Difficult as it is, we need to find a place of forgiveness in our hearts for those who we most despise, he said. Forgiveness, however, does not mean acceptance of their actions. We can still seek to change their minds and behavior, even as we forgive them. For perhaps we need to see their behavior as behavior that springs forth from ignorance, not from malevolence. So, he said, I forgive you polluters, you environmental destroyers, you who put yourselves above all of us and separate from nature. I forgive the people who destroyed Last Rush Canyon. I forgive you, and I ask you to join me, to join us in addressing these problems. Before I end, I'd like to offer at least a few ideas about how we are going to do that, he said. How do we present our solutions? There is always the risk that we will come across as self-righteous, as knowing better than others. Again, we need to be cautious about separative thinking, an idea that we have the solutions for the so-called stupid people of the world. No, what I think we need are solutions that don't come from the top down, and a shift in thinking and behaving that doesn't result from people being forced into believing this shift. We need a shift in thinking that occurs more naturally, that occurs just as our consciousness naturally changes when we wake up from asleep. A change in global consciousness that occurs, individual by individual. Clearly, such a change will not be easy. Clearly, no matter how powerful the President of the United States is, such a change cannot be brought on by one man or woman alone. All he or she can hope to do is facilitate it by changing the dialogue and by changing the way we do things as a federal government. And that, I promise you, is something I would pursue with passion as president. With passion, not anger. Now, Sylvanus said, why am I stressing the difference between these two words? Because passion springs forth from love and connection to the world, and anger is born from hate and disconnection from it. An angry president is one who would seek vengeance on those bad guys, those evildoers that get in his or her way. A passionate one would use the power of persuasion, the appeal to reason, and to the heart, to attempt to convince his, Get down! the voice suddenly shouted inside Sylvanus' head. 
um, opposition to now move. He couldn't ignore it. So he started to go into a crouch behind the podium. And just as he did, he heard a muffled thump in the air and felt a sudden blast of intense pain in his left shoulder. And then pandemonium. Sylvanus, debilitated by pain and confusion, laying on the stage behind the podium. Panic shouts ricocheting off the auditorium walls. Somebody, Lucas, yelling, The house lights! Turn on the house lights! The sounds of seats snapping upright. The thundering of hundreds of feet running for safety, wherever that was. Larry's high-pitched voice screaming, Be careful, Paul! From the side of the stage. And through muddied vision, Sylvanus seeing his best friend approaching, crouching down next to him. Sylvanus! Sylvanus! Can you hear me? Lucas shouted. Yes, Paul, the tree man said through weak, quivering lips. Good, good, he said. Don't try to talk. We're going to get you help. Call 911! Already did, Larry yelled from the side of the stage. The auditorium had almost emptied, though there were about 50 people scattered throughout who'd decided that rather than bolting for the exit, the safe choice was to take cover behind their seats. In addition, a crowd was beginning to gather around Sylvanus. What the hell happened? Lucas wondered as he looked at Sylvanus, who was bleeding rapidly from under his left shoulder. He hadn't even heard what he thought a gunshot sounded like, though there had been a strange sound. And then, the tree man had gone down. Larry ran up to them, parting several people who were trying to get a closer look at Sylvanus. Ambulance will be here in another minute or two. It's on campus already. Lucas looked at Sylvanus. Blood was spilling from under his shirt. He wasn't a medic, but he knew enough to know that the shot, while not immediately fatal, was life-threatening due to the potential heavy loss of blood. What mattered most now was speed. Damn it! Hurry up! He cursed. The crowd around them was mostly staff, ushers, light crew and such, but there were also a few policemen and reporters. Lucas wanted to tell the reporters to buzz off, but he knew they were covering a historic event and they weren't getting in anyone's way. Behind the crowd, two TV cameramen were attempting to find an angle that could give them the best shot of Sylvanus. Much as Lucas had grown to resent the TV news media over the years, he didn't do anything to stop them. Out of the way, someone shouted as a team of medics entered the auditorium and ran quickly to the stage, carting a gurney up a wheelchair ramp and parking it next to Sylvanus. Lucas, Larry, and the crowd backed away, giving the medics space to do their work, but not before Lucas squeezed Sylvanus's hand and said, Hang in there. I'll be with you, no matter what. It didn't take the paramedics very long to get Sylvanus on the gurney, and Lucas sensed that they knew time was of the essence. They didn't do much besides give Sylvanus a mask to breathe oxygen, which would help with the blood, and what looked like a tourniquet to slow the bleeding. Lucas wasn't sure exactly why they were doing what they were doing. All he knew was that he had to trust them. He told one of the paramedics that he was Sylvanus's manager and best friend, and the paramedic smiled and said, Yes, I know who you are. I'm a fan. You can ride with us to the hospital. Once inside the ambulance, Sylvanus's eyes were still slightly open, but he was fading fast. Lucas sat next to him, gripping his hand, and attempting to channel every bit of his life force into the tree man. Paul, Sylvanus whispered. Paul. Shh, Sylvanus, Lucas said. Save your strength. He's right, the paramedic said. Sylvanus's eyes closed. How much longer to the hospital, Lucas asked. Not far, the paramedic said. Is he going to make it? The paramedic smiled, a smile he had probably used on many people in similar situations, though his lack of words worried Lucas. Looking at Sylvanus on the gurney, he could see the tree man had lost most of his color. He was almost a ghost. No, Lucas thought. You cannot give up, Sylvanus. We've come too far for this to be the end. 
The ambulance pulled into the hospital driveway. The back door opened suddenly, and Sylvanus was carted out of the ambulance and into the hospital's doors. All Lucas could do now was watch and pray. Waiting. Waiting for news from the doctors. Waiting for Terry and Scarlet to arrive. Waiting for Miller, too. Waiting for a miracle. Lucas and Larry were allowed to sit in a small private room so they could get away from possible press. Lucas seemed to appease a few reporters in the hospital's main entrance by giving a small statement. But for how long? A TV in the upper corner of the room blared, and they did their best to ignore it. It was on Channel 9, a local independent channel that was owned by CBS, and during the tail end of the 9 p.m. news hour, they'd already seen a few short reports about the assassination attempt. Until he'd heard the news anchor say those two words, Lucas had been denying that was what it was. He had been doing his best to avoid thinking about it, somehow trying to wish it out of existence. For his part, Larry was quiet. Occasionally, he'd said a few comforting words or put his arm around Lucas, but mostly he sat quietly, just being present for his friend. Soon, the ten o'clock news would be on, and while Lucas didn't know if he had the heart to watch the report, he also wanted information. Did the police catch the shooter? If not, did they have any leads? Anything. Anything to make him feel like there were signs of positive progress. Still, that was ten minutes in the future. For now, all he could do was wait. And as he did so, he began to pray. God, I know I'm not a devout follower and have often questioned your existence, and I'm certainly not a man who prays to you every day. So I know it's sort of unfair for me to pray now, but screw it. Sorry, uh, you don't really care about something so petty as what words we use, do you? It's how we use them, right? Uh, anyway, I don't know what to say. I suppose I am sorry. Sorry I ever got Sylvanus into this mess. Sorry I put him into this situation by convincing him to run for president. Sorry I didn't take more precautions. But God, if you were there, if you were listening, I swear, if you allow Sylvanus to pull through, if you let him keep his life, I swear we'll give up this presidential dream nonsense and just live a normal life. I swear. Do we have a deal? and he started to sob. Larry put his arm around him. What have I done, Larry? Lucas asked. No, Larry said, perhaps a little stronger than he meant. Don't do that. But it's my fault, Lucas said, crying still. I was the one who got him out of the tree, the one who gave him all those radical history books to read, the one who told him he should run for president. Not even thinking about the possible dangers that a guy with his politics could face. It was me, Larry. Me. No, Larry said again. You never forced him to do any of those things. You always gave him a choice. A choice he made. But did I? Lucas asked. Sometimes I can be so strong. I know, Larry said. But I also bet that you asked him if he really wanted to do this. Lucas didn't respond. Maybe he felt he couldn't say no to me, to you, to Miller, to all of his fans. Maybe... Larry said. But if that's true, don't you see that this is not all your fault? Bro, I know you're just being emotional right now, just worrying about your good friend, but don't make it worse by laying a guilt trip on yourself. Lucas was quiet, but finally said, Okay, thanks, Larry. Just then, the news came on, and not surprisingly, the lead story was about how the radical, outspoken presidential candidate Sylvanus Douglas was hanging on to his life after an assassination attempt tonight at USC's Boulevard Auditorium. 
The anchor then went to a reporter who was standing outside of the hospital. In the mayhem caused by the shooting and the stampede to the door, no shooter was identified. However, could Lucas hope? Police say they are following some potential leads and are confident they will lead to an arrest as quickly as possible. That's good news, Larry said. I suppose so, Lucas said. What do you mean? Well, Lucas said, this is the LAPD we are talking about here. Fair point, Larry said. And, Lucas continued, as I'm sure you know, sometimes in situations like this, the police rush to make an arrest just to appear to be on top of things, even if that person isn't guilty. Another fair point, Larry said. People who want justice don't usually have patience to spare. And after they catch the guy, the prosecution focuses all of its efforts on defending that arrest by building the case to convict him. Meanwhile, if it's the wrong guy, with every day that passes, the evidence to track down the real guilty dude gets harder and harder to discover. Exactly, Lucas said. Look, man, Larry said, I doubt it'll do much good for me to say this to you, but right now, you've got to just focus on Sylvanus. Let the cops do what they are going to do. It's beyond our control anyway. I know your advice is right, Lucas said, but your doubt about whether I can keep that in mind is also right. Lucas clasped his forehead with his right hand, thinking, Please, God, please, save him. Chapter 16, Looking Back Sylvanus is floating near the ceiling of the hospital operating room as he watches the doctors working rapidly on his body below. He can feel their sense that they are losing him. He wants to tell them it's okay, that he's all right, and doesn't need saving. But when he shouts to the head doctor, the doctor shows no signs that he's been heard. Suddenly, it feels as though something is pulling him somewhere. He doesn't resist. It pulls him to the wall of the room, and he floats through it. Now he knows. He is beyond the physical realm. As he floats through more walls, floors, and hallways, he realizes he's never felt this good. Gone are the negative emotions, the anger and impatience, the frustration, hatred, and fear. In are positive feelings like contentment and relaxation, warmth and connectedness, peace, and, most of all, love. Suddenly, he enters a large room and sees what has been drawing him. His best friend Paul Lucas and Lucas's good friend Larry Sherry sit on a couch against a wall. Both wear worried expressions, and they are having a conversation. He drifts over, feeling concerned for their obvious discomfort. I'm okay, he shouts, but again, neither shows any awareness of him. With every day that passes, the evidence to track down the guilty dude gets harder and harder to discover, Larry is saying. Exactly, Lucas answers. Look, ma'am, Larry says, I doubt it'll do much good for me to say this to you, but right now you've got to just focus on Sylvanus. Let the cops do what they are going to do. It's beyond our control anyway. I'm okay. Don't worry, Sylvanus shouts, again to no avail. He so badly wants to comfort his friends, but he can't. Then he realizes that even if they know he still exists, that doesn't bring him back to life in the physical world. He would still be gone from the world where Lucas and Larry live. The two men had lost a good friend. And last, the campaign would be over. And he also realizes that Lucas has told him in the past he believes in life after death. So the reason Lucas is worried right now has little to do with him being concerned that Sylvanus is gone forever. 
He wishes there was some way he could ease their pain, but again, he feels something pulling at him. This time, it draws him through the walls, and he is outside the hospital, floating above a deserted, decrepit building. He sees through the window a broken, twisted, green umbrella lying on a child's backpack, and he suddenly senses that this boy, Jamie Perkins of Los Alamitos, has long been missing, and that someone needs to know about this. He has to tell someone. But he floats on, and suddenly the scene changes. The physical world is replaced by a dim expanse, like waking up in the middle of the night in a dark room. He feels disoriented, but still is floating somewhere. Above him, a tiny pinprick of white light beckons, and he sees that is where he is going. He feels no fear, only wonder. The pinprick grows larger, the bright white light gradually replacing the gray, and he floats faster and faster. There is a tone, a frequency, and he senses it is like a road for him to follow. So he does by tuning into it. His pace picks up, and the rest is automatic, like being on an escalator, nothing to do but enjoy the ride until he reaches the destination. The pinprick continues to grow and reminds him of being at the bottom of a swimming pool and swimming toward the light at the surface. As he gets closer, the light grows, both in visual intensity, but also in emotional strength, filling him with a sense of warmth, peace, and love that he never imagined was possible. Suddenly, the pinprick has become a totality, and he sees he is not alone. There are others here, beings that seem to be made of this light and dressed, if he can use that word, in radiant, flowing white robes made of the light. They are beautiful. But what fills him with even more happiness is he knows them. They are his father, his beloved sister Doris, and his good friend Jack Walker. They all welcome him, and he laughs. Music, celestial and harmonic, fills the air, and suddenly he is there, in the forest, and he sees the trees and some of the animals he knew and loved, including Shorty the Squirrel, not to mention the mushrooms, the ferns, all of it, as though it never disappeared, but just came here to this holy place. Where am I? he asks. You are safe, Doris says. I know, he answers, but I'm worried about my friends. We understand, Walker says. You can go back to them, his dad says, if you like. Or you can come with us, Doris says. It's so peaceful here, he says. I don't know if I can, or if I want to, leave. Well, you don't have to decide right now, his dad says. No, not yet, Walker agrees. Before you do anything, we have to show you something. Show me something? Sylvanus asks. What? Come with us, Doris says, putting out her hand. Sylvanus grabs it. He is still in the forest, but it has become even more radiant, and now a bubbling, joyous creek babbles through its middle. As if that were not enough, the air is crisp, warm, and scented, and it caresses him. In the middle of the clearing, a shaft of pure white light stretches from the sky to the ground. Enter it, his dad says. Maybe if he was still human, he'd feel fear, perhaps not trust his father, but he feels none of that now. He enters the light shower. Almost immediately, whatever body he has begins to feel lighter, not only physically, but emotionally. He becomes aware of how much negative energy he's been holding inside, how much anger he felt toward the people who destroyed the forest, 
toward the people who started the war in Iraq and all wars around the world, toward the people who attacked nature throughout the ages, who placed themselves above and separate from it, toward all of them, toward all the stupid, stupid, ignorant people. Then he knows. They don't know. They are all deeply confused about who they really are, and to hate them does no one, including him, any good. It only makes his heart heavy, only drags him down. So he lets the hate go into the light shaft, and as he does, he completely forgives them to the point of even loving them. The light shower is over. He steps out of the light and sees that the twelve trees that surround him seem to glow with recognition, and in each of them there appears to be tens of thousands of what he can only describe as books. Doris, his dad, and Walker join him, as does another being who he senses is a librarian, and this being goes to the tree, his tree, at the top of the circle, and reaches up and pulls out a book, and says, Yours. The librarian hands it to Sylvanus, who opens it, and is suddenly immersed in a 3D-like panorama, the other is still at his side, and somehow, in a way he cannot explain, everything seems to be happening at once, though it is all totally understandable. This, he realizes, is his life, every last detail of it. There he is, a young, happy boy named Luke Green, with a head of golden hair, and he sees himself in countless scenes playing with his brothers and sisters, especially Doris, working on the farm with his father, and it is a happy, if challenging time, a time when the family worked hard, but worked together and loved each other. Most amazingly, in each scene he not only feels his emotions, he feels the emotions of the people he interacted with. So, if he loved them, if he treated them well, he feels their appreciation, and it feels great. But if he treated them poorly, or selfishly, he feels their pain, and it hurts. Doubly, because not only does he feel their pain, he feels the understanding that he contributed to their pain. So he is relieved that most of the time he treated people well. But when he watches as he hurts others, even total strangers, it saddens him deeply. Forgive yourself, Doris whispers, though it is easier said than done, as a person is often his own harshest judge. He learns that his grandparents were, indeed, German Jews, and as Hitler rose to power in the 1930s, his father wrote letters begging them to get out while they could. But like his father, they were reluctant to leave their land and said they could weather the storm, just as they had weathered World War I. Sylvanus sees how much worry this caused his father, and he sees that when Luke was a teenager, he sometimes talked about politics and world affairs with his father, who told him that Hitler had to be stopped at all costs. Meanwhile, life on the farm grows increasingly difficult with the frequent dust storms, and he sees how broken up he and the family had been when Doris died from dust pneumonia. As he watches this, Doris squeezes his hand and whispers, I love you. Despite the challenges of his life, he is surprised to see that he was an exceptional student, a fast learner, and particularly adept at science. When the war breaks out, his father is weary as he loses touch of his relatives in Germany and fears the worst. He relives the night when he tells his father that he will join the army and do his part to stop Hitler, and can feel how this made his father feel both tremendous pride and great worry. He realizes how complex human emotions and interactions are, how truly mixed up, and he has great respect for every human for having to deal with such a difficult world. 
In the end, he sees that his father accepts the necessity of his son's choice, even as it tears him up. He watches his days in military training, seeing how he is singled out as someone who has great potential, so the military asks him to consider a top-secret, special assignment. He asks only one question. Will this assignment help me stop Hitler? Absolutely, he is told. So he wholeheartedly agrees. He is in rigorous training with about 15 others, none of them knowing the details of the mission. All they are told is they will likely be dispatched behind enemy lines as spies. Eventually, they are told that the military has developed a top-secret time-slash-teleportation machine and that they had been successful sending mice across base and into the future and past. But the spies had informed them that the Nazis may be ahead of them in developing this technology and that whoever finishes first would have a huge advantage and likely win the war. The commanders asked for volunteers, and Sylvanus is shocked. He was first to raise his hand, the first to agree. And he watches as he eagerly enters the machine, absolutely no self-doubt or second thoughts, and is sent to the forest. I wasn't forced, he asks, surprised in his voice. Not at all, his dad says. You wanted to serve your country, to rid the world of Hitler, no matter the personal risks. You were a true hero. Sylvanus cries, suddenly understanding that his dream that showed him being taken against his will was just a projection of his anxiety about his current life, that he was being forced to run for president, not that it was a snapshot into his past. The life review continues, and he sees how his dad reacts to the news that his son is dead. He reaches out to comfort his dad, but his dad merely laughs. Imagine my surprise when I had my life review, and I saw that you had gone on to live in a tree fifty years in the future. Sylvanus laughs, a deep laugh, and it feels good. He realizes that no matter what sort of pain he caused people in his life, whether intentional or not, they would all, when they died, come here and forgive him. If it's possible, this understanding makes him feel even lighter. Scenes of life in the forest, of befriending creatures, and of becoming a part of the forest community make him happy. But then, before the review finishes, he is reliving that night, though he sees it from a variety of perspectives. There he is, speaking to the crowd, sounding clear and confident, and then he sees him, a man dressed in a police uniform, talking to another officer, standing in the first balcony. All eyes are on Sylvanus, though there is a murmur of conversation rippling through the crowd, and no one notices as the policeman takes a pistol from inside his jacket and takes aim. It's him! And fires! Sylvanus sees his body go down, and in the balcony people start to rush for the door, no one giving the policeman slash assassin a second glance, as he is yelling orders to the crowd, Don't run! Remain calm! It does no good, of course. Sylvanus sees a group of men dressed in what looks like clothes better suited for a camping trip than a night at a political rally, and they all walk out the door, trailing most of the crowd. The policeman begins to walk outside, and Sylvanus tries to see if he has a badge identifying himself, but he can't locate it, so he instead commits as much of his physical appearance to memory as he can. Tall, sandy blonde hair, a small scar above one eye, blue eyes. He's seen enough. I want to go back, Sylvanus says. Yes, Walker says. We thought you might. But before I do, there's one more question, Sylvanus says. 
What? His dad asks. Why did I go to the forest? It's a bit of a mystery as to how it works, Walker says. But it seems that the forest is a portal, an area where space-time has an entry and exit between dimensions. You guys didn't exactly know what you were doing, so it seems that this was the nearest, most powerful place to the experiment, so that's where you ended up. Okay, that explains where, but what about when? Why did I arrive 50 years later? Sylvanus asks. Not sure, his dad says, but I venture it has something to do with pure chance. Uh, I have a theory, Walker says. Let's hear it, Sylvanus says. The Cold War had run its course, Walker says, so you were put there for safekeeping. I don't understand, Sylvanus says. Well, admittedly, it's pretty outlandish, Walker says. But if there's one thing dying and finding all this over here is done for my thinking, it's given me a solid conviction that things, even if we don't always know why, do happen for a reason. When we humans start fooling around with stuff like space-slash-time travel, especially when it's so that we can win wars, something seems to step in and put a stop to it, or at least throw us way off course. With the Cold War over, there was little chance your reappearing would result in the government wanting to start up the experiments again. Not only was the Cold War over, but there was no new enemy when you reappeared. Sure, after Lucas found you, it was awfully close to the 9-11 stuff and the new focus on the so-called Muslim evildoers, but that hadn't settled into establishment thinking deep enough for them to want to consider believing your story and reinvesting in those experiments. Or heck, maybe they are looking back into those experiments since you came back. That's pretty wild, Jack, Sylvanus says, but who knows? Maybe you're right. We'll probably never know. Yeah. Even after we die and get some of the answers, we realize that there are always new questions, that the mystery doesn't disappear, his dad says. Before you go, Doris says, I wonder if you can answer a question. Sure. What did you learn? A lot, he says. If I had to narrow it down to one thing? If you can, Doris says. I learned that how we treat others is the most important way our life is measured, he says. It's what really matters. Not things like money, power, and status. Those are all make-believe measurements. Yes, his father says and smiles. And there is one more thing I'd like to add. What's that, Sylvanus says. Knowledge, his father says. Learning is important for its own sake, so never stop. There is no limit to what we can learn, both about ourselves and about the world we are a part of. Can you remember those things? Definitely, Sylvanus says. Are you ready? Doris asks. I think so, he answers. Luke, his dad says, we love you, and we are here, as well as with you in your world, now. And as his father, Doris and Walker, give him a group embrace, he feels their warmth, their love, and then he feels himself falling, falling, falling. Heavy, like being under a pile of wet winter blankets with no way to remove them. No way because his left arm was immobilized and his right arm, like his body, was still asleep. But it's more than physical. Truly, he felt like the weight of the world was on his shoulders, 
all of the fears, problems, and anxieties. He wanted to shout, no, but he couldn't. He was too far under, not even close to consciousness, but not asleep either. Suddenly, he realized two things. First, he was back, alive as Sylvanus Douglas in May 2003, somewhere, though he couldn't remember where, but alive. Second, there was an escape hatch just short of death, sleep. If he could ignore the pain and heaviness for just a few minutes, that's all he needed. It was a challenge, but also a piece of cake. Like a blessing, exhaustion was his route to escape. Later, he had no idea how long. He woke again, his eyes still closed. This time, the heaviness felt like some of the blankets had been removed. He found he could think more clearly, and as he did, he remembered where he'd been. Home. That was the first word that came to him. Not heaven, not the afterlife, but home. And as he thought about it, he felt a longing to return. But then he remembered something else. Paul Lucas. And when he opened his eyes just part way, he saw his friend sitting in a chair next to the bed, a book open on his lap and his head tucked into his chest, obviously asleep. Paul, he whispered, hardly even audible to him. He tried again, but it was no use. And Sylvanus realized that much as he wanted to talk with his friend, he wanted even more to sleep. So he closed his eyes and had a dream. He is with his father, Doris, and Walker again, this time in a coffee shop, and all three look like normal people, rather than beings made of light. Still, he asks, Am I dead again? No, his dad says, laughing. But then again, you never were dead in the first place. Just between life and death. So, if this is just a dream, then how can I believe it? Only you can answer that, Walker says. How? By being true with yourself, he says. How do I do that? Ask yourself deep questions, his dad says. The key is being honest with yourself. Take a deep look at your emotions and thoughts and ask, why are you having them? What brought them on? Okay, Sylvanus says. I think I understand. So, what brought this on? You did, Doris says, laughing. I figured that out, Sylvanus says. It is my dream, after all. But why this particular dream? Why do you think? His dad asks. He thinks, and then he has it. Because it's another weakness? Not honestly facing myself? Perhaps, Doris says. I think he's on the right track, Miss Mystery, her dad says. Yes, Walker says. Honesty is paramount. Your world needs more of it. Sylvanus thinks, While I agree that there is too much lying and too much secrecy, can't being too honest with people sometimes hurt them? In the short run, his dad says, sure. And sure, we have to consider how we tell people things in an honest way. But if we lie to them, even those things we consider white lies, we give them reason to distrust us which leads to all sorts of unintended consequences. Plus, Doris says, we can't always be burdened with how people choose to react to us. If we are speaking our truth, and it upsets someone, of course we may feel bad about that, but the responsibility is not ours alone. And besides, Walker says, if you lie to someone to save them from discomfort, many times you will cause them discomfort anyway, 
and most times, on a deeper level, lying to others, no matter the intention, causes oneself emotional trauma. So, Sylvanus says, in the end, honesty truly is the best policy? Of course, Walker says. I am sure you remember that you lied to yourself for several months, and to the world, including friends like me, about who you were and how this tore you up. And once the truth came out, how it felt so natural and so good to be relieved of having to tell that lie. In the end, if you are completely honest, as your friend Paul would say, then you just have to let the cards fall where they may. Lucas couldn't say a word. Instead, his eyes filled with tears, and he reached out to squeeze Sylvanus's hand. Paul, Sylvanus managed. Terry? Scarlet? Sylvanus, Lucas said, you're still with us. Yes, he said. You didn't really think you could get rid of me that easily, did you? The members of the Lucas family all laughed, and Scarlet hugged Sylvanus's midsection. No, Lucas said. Of course not. Sylvanus wanted to speak more, but his breath felt tight, so he took some deep breaths instead. Take it easy, Lucas said. I'm sure whatever you want to tell me can wait, right? Sylvanus nodded and just lay there, appreciating through the pain of his shoulder the physical comfort of having three loved ones hug and squeeze him.